This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on this COVID-19 edition of the podcast, joining me remotely from England, is Richard Simpson, vice chairman of Simpson's Malt. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks. Uh, we are we are. This is the first time we've done an overseas, uh, you know, edition of this podcast remotely, and we're going to. Uh, but at the same time, this podcast has been a little time coming. I remember we were talking about it at Big Beers in uh, up at uh, Breckenridge in January, and we had planned on getting together at CBC this year for an in-person conversation, and uh, you know, things just happened, and uh, this is the world we live in. And now That's we're right. here That's, talking. That, yeah, no, uh, that was the last time I was overseas, which seems incredible. Uh, I'm usually traveling a lot more, but yeah, that was a that for, was a fun festival. <laughs> for sure. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. We're certainly going to talk about malt and uh, Simpson's uh, traditional and contemporary approaches to producing great malt that brewers love to use and uh, the things that add character to it. Um, before we do that, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more. Trust GD to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by HS1228 Hops, third in the new BSG Hops Solution portfolio. HS1228 takes you all the way to the heart of the West Coast. HS1228 is bursting with pronounced tropical fruit like mango, pineapple, citrus, and pine characteristics that bring out a classic West Coast hop character. Designed for late kettle or dry hop for various hop forward styles. Learn more about BSG Hops Solutions online and look for more BSG Hops Solutions releases coming soon. Richard Simpson. Um, Jamie. You know, your family owned maltster uh, yeah, has a long tradition of making high quality malts uh, for brewers around the world. Talk to me a little, give me a little bit of that, that family business history um, in a nutshell, how Simpsons came to make malt in the way that they do and uh, what that history looks like. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Well, yeah, I'm a fifth generation maltster. Uh, or as, as, as I call it, the don't mess it up generation. Um, <laughs> I'm just here, custodian, hopefully pass it on one day. Uh, and yeah, we've been around since 1862. Um, we actually started off as uh, something called a corn factor or corn factors uh, who are agricultural merchants. So they were used to buying barley, selling it to maltsters and Thought that looked like a good thing to do. So went into malting pretty soon after that. Um, uh, so started off by James Parker Simpson back then. Um, and we've been doing that ever since. Um, 
generation to generation. Um, my, <laughs> my father is still uh, pretty active. Uh, he, yeah. he comes in two days a week at the age of 83 um, and uh, is very useful. Um, always reminds us when uh, things have been better, when we think we're pretty special. And uh, <laughs> always reminds us when there's been tougher times when we think, you know, the world's ending. So, uh, yeah. yeah, he's a steady hand for sure. Um, but, uh, yes, myself, uh, my cousin's also in the business and, um, I, we have a great team full of experts, um, who, you know, sort of guide us through. For sure. For sure. So let's, you know, I mean, obviously there's this, uh, long century plus history of, uh, of malting for you all. I guess it's, you're over 150 years then now, if my uh, quick yeah. math is doing That's correct. Very good. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about the last 20, uh, yeah, you, you know, the last 20 years of the business. Now, again, for a monster having watched, you know, having that kind of history and uh, your father, I imagine has this incredibly long kind of viewpoint to look at this from, um, talk to me about the last 20 years and what you have seen through this kind of craft beer, uh, growth. And now over the last decade explosion, um, you know, what that has meant in terms of uh, how you make malt, what brewers are expecting from you, um, the kind of interaction and relationships, how that has kind of changed, you know, in the more recent term. Yeah, sure. Um, well, it, yeah, and 20 years is, I've been around for those last 20 years. Um, so that's that's definitely sort of my journey. Um, I, uh, when I join the business just before those 20 years um i guess uh we become very much a uh a maltster that brew uh, that that malted you know four or five different types of malts uh and some crystal malts and they went to about 100 customers there's you know quite a few in the uk then um the market was definitely decreasing up until that point. Um, and I think... Uh, because well, the product that you made was really more geared towards, you know, traditional British styles or... Yeah, and I, and I think we were... Yeah, absolutely. And I think brewing in the UK was um, becoming very much, you know, uh, there were smaller brewers. There's a lot more lager brewing. Um, car scale was there, but um, it was you know, sort of moving to this sort of keg alternatives all the time. Um, yeah, um, a lot of consolidation and, and the bigger yeah. side of brewing and looking at costs and kind yeah, of yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and then we had distilling on the other on the other hand. And I, I guess what had happened in the last twenty years is as these um, as these bigger brewers obviously um, consolidated. We found that it, it 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 really wasn't sort of um, what we were used to uh, as a company for all those hundred years. You know, I grew up with stories. My dad would tell me of, you know, I mean, going to a dinner would be a three day affair. You know, you had these relationships, um, and you built these relationships, and uh, then you know, when I joined the business, I remember being. Uh, in the boardroom and I think I was there because I knew how to use a computer and um, and it was a reverse internet auction for supplying a uh, a, um, a customer 
and I thought, hmm, this is a bit different to what I kind of thought it was going to be. Um, and then craft happened. And, you know, um, what's been interesting is it's a return to those relationships and it's a return to looking at, you know, the intricacies and the differences between malts and the quality of those malts and a, a true appreciation of what the flavor of those malts can bring to the final product. Um, it's, uh, yeah, my dad sort of probably put it best by sort of saying that he kind of recognized it as something he recognized a lot more in it from, you know, it's almost like a return to traditional brewing methods and those relationships. Um, and, um, my, my late brother was, um, was very keen. He'd worked in the roast house. He'd identified some differences in our crystals in the way we did it. Um, he encouraged those differences um, because he saw uh, in craft brewers people that appreciated those differences. So, um, yeah, over those, over, particularly over the last 10 years, you know, we very much switched from those sort of bigger brewers to distilling. And, you know, we do a lot of distilling milk predominantly because of where we're situated. I think they share many uh, uh, things with craft brewers in terms of wanting to build those relationships, in terms of um, looking for specific quality aspects and the sort of uh, the sustainability and the traceability of those malts. Um, and so that sort of kind of suits what we're about, which is, you know, about those quality, about building relationships, about um, about the traceability of our products. How you mentioned, you know, in the earlier days, you were a five core product kind of company. What does that look like now? Um, you know, as uh, as brewers want more and more kind of you know precision and focus uh, in what they make. Uh, how has that product line changed for you? Uh, well, it's it's certainly increased. Um, yeah. we, we try to be good cause, um, <laughs> we get told off by our production people all the time. They keep reminding us that, um, that particularly our, our plant in the, in the South of England in, in Norfolk, uh, was, was, uh, originally owned by Brewer and, and was built to service those, those sort of requirements. But now, um, yeah, so I, I have to be very careful about uh, sort of bringing up the idea of a new malt because um, <laughs> I immediately get a lot of uh, questions about wh where are we going to put it, you know. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that been a source of a lot of investment, particularly over the last sort of five to ten years. Um, but, uh, yeah, that um, that is certainly, uh, yeah. So, I mean, now, crikey, we probably have... Um, double that in terms of base malts yeah. and and certainly our crystals and our roast portfolio is um it you know i don't think it's that big but um <laughs> it's it's probably is sort of bigger than the most i guess for sure for sure i definitely want to talk to you about one malt in particular golden promise because uh you know we've noticed even in our, our uh, best in beer poll last year when we asked our readers about their favorite malt, um, that one came out on top of that list. Uh, you know, but before we start talking about kind of you know specific approaches to malt and what those ultimately mean for brewers, um, talk to me a little bit. Of, let's kind of go back further in the process and talk about the um, the way you work with barley growers. 
um, the kinds of barley varieties that um, you know that you pull in for your various malts, uh, you know, and how that process looks for Simpsons. Um, you know, what what does that look like, uh, and how do you uh, work with the you know, the agricultural side of, of barley production? Um, well, in uh, in the United Kingdom, we do have a, a, an approved variety list, um, and um, this does um, help manage the amount of new varieties coming through. Um, it has three general requirements, which is it needs to perform better agronomically. Um, it, need, it needs to be able to be malted, um, sure. and the brewer's got to like it. Or the distiller's going to like it. So there's 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 two, there's, well there's actually there's three different sort of uh, target audiences I guess. There's brewing, there's distilling, and then there's sort of uh, uh, sort of grain distilling. So it's got to be uh, high enzymic uh, malts. Um, so there that sort of kind of helps the whole uh, UK malting industry kind of and the brewing industry. Um, sort of select varieties and these come through fairly regularly um and, and this is done at a government level where you know, the or yeah, uh, is this done um, at an industry level yes yeah, it's, it's an industry sort of um oh quango i guess is probably the wrong term uh, somebody <laughs> will pick me up on um the hgca um so it's a cereals authority it's funded by uh, government by by yeah. um by industry um, and they sort of manage that. And um, so the maltsters have obviously helped that by, um, you know, th- with the malting aspect of it. Um, and brewers will do test batches. And these, you know, go through an approval process. Um, we sort of typically call it um, the sort of stairway to heaven. Uh, apologies to Logan if he listens to this. But it's like... Um, yeah, there's various processes you just have to go through to become authorised. So they've got to tick boxes and they've got to sort of sustainably do the things they're measured on. So yield and resistance to disease are the two typical ones agronomically. Um, we, we're really lucky in the UK because the the barley um, is very well suited to, to, um, to sort of beer styles that... Um, have re-emerged almost um they 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 do a little bit different we we have this sort of bizarre uh situation in the uk we have this maritime climate and these sort of soils these sort of alluvian soils and uh, really sort of just seem ideal for sort of growing this barley and that's probably why we've got the beer styles that we have um because of the barley um with Simpsons, I guess we're we're different to most. Where we have we actually have that agricultural um, division, so we we have that sort of vertical integration. Um, it's really going back to what we used to do 150 odd years ago, that sort of grain merchants. So we do have a team of um, of agronomists, uh, and the UK you have to be um, qualified and certified to advise on agrochemicals and on fertilizers so that agronomical advice we have a team of of people who do that who uh, really are measured uh, on their ability to make sure that the the barley's good you know good enough to come into the maltings not on how much product they sell um, and 
part of that division as well is seed. Um, so we actually um, grow seed up of, of various mm. varieties. Um, so we can really go back and um, the, the, the sort of that really helps with certain varieties. Um, one in particular you've mentioned is Golden Promise. Uh, uh, varieties like Golden Promise and Marisotta are no longer on those approved lists because they have been outperformed agronomically for many years already. So the approved list is a is more of a more guidance than thou shalt grow this. <laughs> um, but obviously farmers look to it um, because they know, you know, in, in terms of an economic model of growing these sorts of things, they're kind of what everything hangs on. Um, and, you know, maltsters, we know it all malt, um, hopefully, if we're doing things right. And, and brewers know that, that it's a common variety, that it's sustainable. Um, if not forever, then for, for, for long enough. Um, so, yeah, so it's quite elaborate. Sorry, it's a bit of a long answer and dodges about. No, bit, no, it, you know, we, we love talking about this on the podcast and talking with uh, Tim Matthews of, uh, of Oster Blues and Canarchy. We talked about the same kind of thing, this, uh, uh, the relationships between agriculture and, you know, these, uh, and then the, how those that becomes ingredients which then become beer uh all the pieces of this chain are important the relationships are important and then the you know the um viability of each of those things along the way matters because you have to build this entire ecosystem that works for everyone in the chain and not just for the brewers um you know these these are important things and everyone who is making beer should should understand these it, it's Interesting, and, and I want to talk to you a little more about Golden Promise. I love that this idea that this beloved thing for brewers may not be the most agronomically uh, effective thing from a grower perspective or even a maltster perspective. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but first, with nearly 20 years of innovation and experience, Brewmation specializes in electric, steam, and direct fire brew houses, complete cellar solutions, and automated controls for the craft brewing industry. From half barrel to 30 barrel systems, Brumation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar, or just need some parts to keep you up and running, Brumation has you covered. Visit them at brumation.com to get started. Also, Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in branded drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. They make your job easy by serving as your one-stop shop for everything you need to outfit your taproom and fans. Current trends include to-go drinkware, tie-dye prints, and portable coolers. Visit egrandstand.com forward slash lookbook to see what's trending. That's egrandstand.com forward slash lookbook. We were talking before the break about Golden Promise and how uh, you know this is a, a different kind of now no longer approved uh, barley variety. Um, talk to me a little bit about what Golden Promise is. Um, obviously, it's a malt that's rather beloved by American brewers, especially IPA brewers, for kind of building a um, you know a, a malt character in otherwise very very light beers. Um, that's certainly as everything has gotten lighter and more and more brewers are using less kind of crystal caramel malts in hoppy beers in particular for some other kind of longevity reasons. Um, 
finding character in um, base malts is a harder and harder thing to do and a more and more important thing. Uh, and so, yes, a lot of brewers have latched on to Golden Promise. Talk to me about what it is and, uh, you know, from the start, what, you know, that kind of barley variety. And then what, from your perspective as a maltster uh, with uh, over a century and a half of experience, uh, you know, how, what it is that, uh, you know, creates the kind of magic in that specific malt. Well, um, Golden Promise is uh, it's over 50 years old as a variety. Um, so it, you know, it, it shares that with Marisotto, which is another malt that everyone, uh, everyone probably knows. Yes. Um, the, uh, it started life off as a uh, distilling variety, predominantly. Oh. Um, it, it took the agricultural world by storm. Um, it, it seemed to, uh, it seemed to ripen early in the field. And, and that was, um, that was a big bonus for farmers. Um, because, uh, especially the further North you get, as you, you may have heard, we get, we get a little bit of rain in the UK. <laughs> it's, it, and it all helps to make some lovely barley, um, but it, um, yeah, if you can, if you can get it out of the field early, that's good. And, um, because you can start thinking about your next crop. So agriculturally, they, they like that it, it yielded better than the varieties that are about then. And, and varieties in those days rarely changed. I don't think there was a right. stairway to heaven, uh, back then it was, um, you know, somebody came up with a good one. Great. Let's try it out. Brilliant. It works. Um, so it started life off predominantly as as a distilling variety and was really popular we were certainly selling it to distillers um well into the 80s uh, even the 90s there was there was one distillery in particular that kind of um carried on distilling with it for for well into the 90s um the old brewer used it uh probably the most famous one um is timothy taylor's um and they've used it for for well over 40 years um so th i think they liked it they liked the sort of character it gave uh, that you mentioned it it seems to give a mouthfeel that 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 isn't replicated in two other in too many other malts um and you know even if you even if you're killing it very lightly um you know, even with that sort of distilling spec kind of kilning, it, it sort of gives a plenty of character um, and, and plenty of mouthfeel. And, and I think, like you mentioned, that's that's why it's been seen a re resurgence a little bit, um, because it, it seems to be able to cope with and, and interact with hops um, so, slightly differently. And it, and it seems to be able to cope even with the, the heaviest, um, heaviest hop uh, additions um and um and also even with sort of lower abv beers and i and i know lower abv over it, where you are and sat is is yeah. probably a lot <laughs> different to what we're talking about here in the uk but um it still seems to carry that mouthfeel through um it yeah i mean we love it i mean it's it, it did get to a stage where um i think probably less than 2000 tons of it was grown uh, in the UK, and and that's when we sort of um, look to step in a bit, uh, take control of the management of it, uh, and and having that seed plant 
really has helped with that. So we 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 have that variety now. Um, we um, we let uh, another maltster down in Yorkshire by the name of Fawcett's, which I'm sure the listeners have heard of too. We let we let um, we let James uh, arrange uh, some GP to be grown so they can use it. Um, and 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 that's because um, <laughs> that's because we trust them um, yeah. uh, as a competitor, uh, and we believe it keeps us honest too in terms of um, not you know being seen to have a monopoly on it. So we do compete on contracts with you know uh, in the in, all in the best possible way with James, uh, it, you know everywhere it seems um, <laughs> to sell that. Damn that yeah. guy! No, I love that guy. Um, so yeah, so um, yeah, Golden Promises has um, yeah, it it it's gone from well, we try to grow a little bit more every year. Um, not you know, sometimes the elements are against us on that, so it doesn't always work. Um, and you know, we find farmers who still remember growing it back in the yeah. day. Um, and you know the farmers uh the farmers i know um you know they must be crazy growing malting barley right you know i mean they could just grow something easy but they they just seem to take um a real love of growing something that that isn't straightforward and they love doing that um and then you add an element in of oh hey here's a variety that basically went out because it yields terribly compared to modern varieties Oh, and it's and it's you know it, it's it's not so good against mildew, and they just sort of seem to go oh yeah great that's brilliant that's you know let's have a go with that so um, <laughs> like a yeah, good challenge yeah so they so they like doing it but the challenge is it does yield um, you know gosh a lot less and 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 that's really where that's really where you have to incentivize them to do that. So that's, right. that's why the barley is more expensive. Um, and, and therefore that's why the malt's usually more expensive. Um, uh, and every farmer that grows it for us, uh, grows it on contract, um, right up front. Um, we sort of, you know, we basically look to do the agronomy for them. Um, so we like to have, uh, some control over what they're doing with that because um we yeah we 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 like to have that traceability as well um and yeah so and and actually it's been pretty successful so we we, i think we've gotten the ground this year about hopefully about twelve thousand tons of golden promised barley this year hopefully hopefully depends (laughs) if the weather behaves itself when you're talking about agriculture, it's always only hopefully, you know, there's no, no, no yeah. guarantees. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we definitely sort of say, you know, not just out the field, we want to, right. we want to hear reports back from FEs and, um, and distillers mash tons before we're happy. That's for sure. Yeah. What does that process look like of, you know, obviously you've got multiple different growing areas, you know, the UK as an agri- agronomic region is not 
as diverse as a country the size of the United States, where you've got, you know, the South and Northeast and the Pacific Northwest and the upper Midwest with very incredibly different uh, environmental sure. conditions. Um, there's a little more uniformity. There's still some variance, obviously, north to south, you know, um, closer and farther from water. Um, but how much of, you know, of, of that kind of uh, variety and variance do you find in that raw barley coming in and what does that what does your team do to kind of you know help make sure that that barley uh, meets the specs as it's coming in yeah sure so so we do um there is some sort of general uh growing areas for 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 arable i suppose or, or particularly for for barley the sort of combinable crops which probably you know goes right up to the north of scotland and um, predominantly down the east coast of the UK, um, East Anglia, you've got some fantastic sort of soil and conditions there for, you know, uh, nine times out of 10, you're getting the best barley out of there. Um, and then it kind of just sort of goes south a bit, Hampshire. Um, we do try to, we do get some grown in Cornwall and uh, places like that. Um, gets quite wet there, get a lot of rain. <laughs> Even though everyone goes on their holidays there, you get quite a lot of rain. Um, yeah, and, um, you know, varieties are different. Um, the varieties, I guess, um, in the north tend to be more for distilling. So those varieties are also uh, GN-free varieties. So that's glycosidic nitrile, which is something the distillers would like. And, um, and you know, uh, you could argue they're a bit, they need to be tough enough to cope with um the, the elements that you might find in Scotland um, get a lot of sunshine in Scotland, but you also get a lot of rain and it, and it is colder than, than sure. you get down south. Um, so things like Marisota, for instance, yeah, I, you don't really look to grow that up north. It's, it, it's not, it doesn't work out too well. Um, GP, we tend to grow uh, in the area where our agronomists are. And because traditionally, it was, you know, a distilling variety tends to be up here, perfectly suited for up here. Um, and um, the other sort of uh, varieties, um, they, they tend to be sort of good for brewing and distilling. But where the differences are, um, if they're not very good distilling, they do tend to naturally be grown further south. Um, and I've forgotten the rest of your question, Jamie. <laughs> No, I, I'm, as I'm hearing well, how do you talk, make sure? Yeah. yeah, yeah. How do they? How did they? Uh, you know, kind of. Uh, what is that kind of quality assurance process on on barley coming into the uh, malt house before it goes through the malting process look like? Oh uh, yeah, sure. So um, yeah, so um, typically when when grain arrives at the maltings, uh, the sort of the four typical. And bits of analysis that you'd look at um, for every batch are um, are your moisture and your protein or nitrogen as we call it um, and you have a screenings level just to see how bold it is and you have um, a viability test so you usually do a quick what's called a tetrazoleum test which basically is just measuring to see that grain is alive because if it's not alive it's not going to molt. Right. Um, so the moisture is really a check because um, 
you need to be able to store it safely so that it doesn't sort of uh, end up uh, going off, dying, encouraging beasties. Um, um, in quite a lot of the UK, uh, we dry the barley when it comes off the field. Um, it, it will certainly come off a lot higher in moisture than it would, say, in Idaho or somewhere like that. <laughs> sure, um, sure. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, we've, you know, drying, we, we regularly do, certainly in the north of England. Um, in fact, we, we do it in the south of England too, but we, we quite often use it as a mechanism to uh, to sort of reinforce some homogeneity in the, in the grain and the bulks. And also it sort of helps break that natural dormancy you get in barley so that hopefully it's ready in a homogenous way uh, a bit earlier than it normally would be. So those are the four main tests. But of course, we do um, other tests. We obviously send away uh, as part of a due diligence scheme, um, pesticide analysis and heavy metals, all those all those good stuff. Um, right. But those are predominantly the four four sort of varieties. So um we, we tend to, that's when your quality control really sort of starts. Um, you can do bits before, obviously. Um, but that's when we start to look to segregate it um, on protein levels, um, on the size of the grain. Um, that's when you really start to see if you can separate it so that you can start to fine tune those bulks that would be sort of drawing on for the next uh, 12 to 15 months. Um yeah, I mean it's you know it's it's where I started um, in summer holidays, um, you know, and it, and it was always sort of you know uh, the quote that was always quoted at me by everyone then by my father. It's what we have in our in our in our um, in our sort of our, the entranceway to our office is the art of making good malt out of poor barley is yet to be discovered. A guy called Robert Free. <laughs> Um, 1884, I think, and, and we still believe that now. If you, if you get that bit wrong, yeah, you're you're, you're really going to have a nightmare for the whole year. So, um, yeah, uh, the one thing I should mention, of course, is you physically check it. So, right. you know, hopefully, it doesn't smell of diesel, or um, hopefully, you know, it looks good, and hopefully, it doesn't smell bad, and um, hopefully, you don't have any bugs either. You don't want bugs in the malt house. For sure, no, you. They're don't. eating all the grain. That's terrible. <laughs> You've paid for it. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the malting process and what that looks like for Simpsons. Uh, but before we do that, are you looking to start or expand your craft brewery? Look no further than Abe Beverage Equipment for complete brewing and packaging solutions. Abe has been a trusted partner for over 1,000 breweries worldwide and is known for their excellent service. Contact Abe today for a quote on a complete brew system at abeequipment.com. Abe offers turnkey solutions from three to 60 barrel brew houses and canning lines from 15 to 90 cans per minute. Visit abeequipment.com for complete brewery solutions. That's abeequipment.com. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email only for all access subscribers, premium content, and all access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. So once that barley is in your process, Richard, um, you know, what does, uh, talk, talk to me about that malting process and what that looks like, uh, you know, for Simpsons. Um, so, um, the sort of classic elements of steeping, germination and kilning, um, yeah. we, um, 
we have uh, yeah, probably 90% of what we do um, are in bits of kit, maybe slightly less, bits of kit that are very similar. Um, we still have one uh, quite old stream that uh, my father built in the 60s, or part of it, and we have... Um, you know, subtle variations depending on the malt. You know, we yeah. got uh, kind of an old drum maltings which we use um, as part of our crystal making process. But also, we make green malt for a customer, so unkill malt um, that goes with some drums as well. Um, so we really sort of use their slightly smaller batch sizes. So yeah, the malting process. Okay, um, <laughs> this is where I hope my colleagues aren't listening. Um, <laughs> so the you know the first element is steeping. You're gonna give us the high level view of this, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's what I, I I've been learning. <laughs> the um, so steeping um, first first process in earnest in malting, um, and that's really about kicking off that sort of process of turning barley into malt. Um, that's really trying to and all malting really is trying to do is trick that barley into thinking it's in a field and it needs to grow and so by basically putting in a, a big steep tank with lots of water um, uh, really sort of gets that moisture into the grain and that really sort of wakes it up and gets it going and um, you're looking to get the moisture of of that barley from sort of about 12 percent up to about 46 47 percent and you do that by uh you know uh by steeping and steeping has sort of two main processes which is like um in water and you drain the water away and you don't have water and because it's a, a living thing you uh, you need to make sure you don't drown it by having it underwater all the time so you get the moisture up you let it start to kind of almost respire and then you get the water in again and you can do that two or three times uh depends on the malt you're making depends on the nature of the barley at the time right. um but the key things to steeping is trying to get a really nice homogenous sort of start to this uh to this malting process try and get a nice even moisture it'll start to chit which is the, basically the the barley plant starting to grow and you're looking to for that to be even and that's a good that's your first visual indicator that that you're getting a nice even start to that process um because there are like, layers here in the steeping tank and you want all of everything to be yeah. moving along at the same kind of pace sure so yeah and so we're we're i suppose we're a bit different um we've we got these uh cylindro conical steeps which isn't very different we've got a very um we've we usually have quite a sort of acute angle on these cylindro conical steeps uh, about 65 degrees um, and we have a central column going through them with a deflector at the top um, so we give it a really good mix every now and then hmm. and that's by blowing sort of low pressure high volume air from the bottom and it just drags up through that central column and it just drags everything around so you get a really good mix and that breaks out any air pockets that might appear it really mixes everything up um and it also releases any sort of build up of co2 because yeah. it's starting to live right so um yeah we, that's a probably i, I mean I, I know that's a bit different because when we were looking to build new ones a few years ago uh, my, my brother and i 
basically drove to Germany to the people who were making our maltings back then um, to try and persuade them that you could do it. And, that I, <laughs> and they were, you know, they're the engineers, right, and German engineers to boot. But we pretty much were sure you could do that. It wouldn't be a problem. And, Since you, you already know, had them. Well, <laughs> yeah, it was, I think it's more the size of them that oh, we had because okay. we, we can get about 80 tons of grain in some of these. And they were they were a little bit worried about them all falling over or, you know, um, the whole building falling apart, which, um, <laughs> yeah, after some teething problems, we sorted out some of the realities of it. But, um, yeah, it's so that's a steeping process. Um, from that, um, we predominantly move it to uh, our what we call our germination kilning vessels or our GKVs. Um, so we don't just germinate in those, we also kiln in those. But in terms of the sort of actual vessel and how it looks like, uh, uh, we it, it's, um, it's uh, circular again, um, has a central column. We have a plenum chamber. Um, so it sits on these perforated, uh, perforated metal floor. Um, our vessels, the floor actually moves round rather than the beam. Hmm. Um, uh, the beam's important because it has a bunch of turners on it. And the one thing you've got to do with germination is you've got to turn the malt. So if everyone thinks back to those floor maltings where you have to turn it and they turn right. it with a shovel, um, this is that, but in a, in a, on a sort of a pneumatic scale, I guess. And you have to turn it, otherwise it tends to knit together and when you kill on it, you end up having to get it out using sort of, you know, pneumatic drills, basically. <laughs> it's like cement. It just right. mats together. So as these rootlets mat together, you, you need to break it up. And and that brings also, um, that, that enables you for it to be even again. Because the, the bed depths can be, you know, a meter, around about a meter. Um, and you blow in 100% humid air in the bottom through the better malt and out, and you're 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 basically um, uh, managing the temperature so it's even. It, you know, in growing, it generates heat, so you need to keep it cool. That's why you've got that humid air. Um, in Berwick, we don't have any air conditioning. It's not usually an issue in Berwick upon Tweed. Um, temperatures never really vary from not degrees centigrade apologies to, to i think we had a 25 <laughs> the other day and i was worried that the pavements were going to split but um it's it's you know it's fairly even um down south sometimes well, yeah we could do with a bit of air conditioning maybe in the summer but you could pretty much control it by volume of air going through and the fact you've got some nice cold water basically fogging jets with the humid air um, so you do that for about four days and you're just really trying to manage that sort of, uh, that part of the process where the grain itself is releasing enzymes to convert all those proteins into sort of these, uh, less complex carbohydrates. Um, and you're doing that without trying to use, um, too much of those starch because right. it needs that starch to, to do that. Um, and you know, traditionally, and um, what we still use now is you can more or less gauge it by that rootlet growth. It grows under the skin along the grain and actually you can, um, and our, you know, our sort of, uh, our sort of maltsters will go around twice a day. They'll still break open the back, see where it is. And that's, you know, it's not the only analysis we do. We obviously sure. have a lab that analyzes moistures, et cetera, but 
that kind of that's kind of the you know the thing there if you see it and you think it's growing too fast or you think it needs a drink of water um no matter what it says moisture wise you you know it comes down to that uh, i just going to mention it's the art of malting sure so there is that element of that um so typically germination is four or five days and then you kiln it so traditionally you might have another building for that kilning wise um and today you still get separate kilns we um we basically close a set of doors open another set of doors and we blast heat through it and uh, so it stays in the same building doesn't move it about we quite like that it doesn't you know break it up etc um and you kiln it uh, you know anything up to 24 hours sometimes longer depending on the type of malt um and depending on the product as well so if it's a, an ale malt you're looking to add a bit of color a bit of high temperatures distilling you're really trying to be gentle trying to reserve some of that enzymic activity that the distiller is going to use um what are on. those kind of temperature ranges obviously these are going to be in ranges but uh yeah um centigrade uh i i don't think that with distilling that you're going to get anywhere higher than uh, 50 to 60 degrees centigrade which yeah. is what double add 32 something like that um and um with with ale malts you you you're you're actually sort of uh, ramping it up so they you know there's a profile to it they tend to yeah. start low and and end up higher and you're getting those up to sort of 90 percent and and there's sort of distinct phases in the kilning process but you know basically you're you're looking to halt the process so it's a nice ready package for the next user um and certainly with um with, with the brewing you can you can start to add things like flavor uh and color um so that's base malt sure um and you know we have we you know we have a place in berwick predominantly does distilling it's like a big distilling malt factory but um you know they've really tuned it in there um uh so look you know uh, when it when it comes to the do you want me to talk a little bit about sort of crystal malts and roast malts let's definitely do that <laughs> um, okay so um crystal and roast malts crystal malts um you we do exactly the same for steeping and for germination um we um we use slightly different vessels for our germination um uh down at Timitzel, we have these old drum maltings which we find makes a really nice it's a really nice, gentle way of making it. Um, but from sort of about day three, you we start to take some out of that drum and we put it into our roast drums. So these are like, I don't know if anyone's seen a coffee roaster. They're like sort of slightly converted coffee roasters. Right. Um, and we have uh, one, two, three, four, five of those now. Um, they, um, and and. It, at that point, they go into the the roast drum. We are looking to, um, we basically put in a drum, close all the flaps, so we're not letting any air in, any air out. We're heating that drum, and we're creating this stewing process. So you're trying to retain the moisture inside the drum and inside the the grain, but you're adding a lot of heat, um, and that starts not just that sort of um, uh, process of stopping it to germinate you're actually starting to convert these sort of carbohydrates into sugars um and when you do that we're looking to do that so we get it's almost a liquid inside 
Um, and, huh. and that's one of our, our things where it's almost liquid inside. So one of the processes is when it comes to towards an end of stewing, you know, the roaster will be taking it out, looking at it, squeezing it. Um, it's a bit, it's not a very good term for it, but it's, you know, it's almost like the zit test people call, um, <laughs> you know, it squeezes out, you get this nice sugary liquid comes yeah. out. Um, so when you're happy with that and it's uniform, um, then you open up all the flaps. You're getting some, you know, heat going through it, through the drum. And you're looking to apply that heat quickly and it's hot. And so what happens to that nice sugary liquid is it starts to caramelize. Um, you know, so you're getting all those wonderful uh, mallard reactions, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you can start to add color um, slightly differently. And, it, and if you've got every bit right before then, then you have something right at the end uh, as a crystal malt that you you could break open and it looks like crystal because it it should look like crystal. It's called crystal, as I keep saying. <laughs> um, now roasting slightly different. Right. So bear with me. So we we actually steep. Uh, we steep the same way. Um, we then germinate, but for a very short time. I mean, for a day, and and then we'll actually kiln it. On a traditional kiln um and then we've got a nice sort of it's what yeah similar to dextrin malt i suppose yeah. um so we've got that packet there that um we then put into the roast drum and we add temperature and then really it's about adding that temperature in a way that you're balancing color with it getting too hot and charring right because as soon as you char it it might look dark but it's not when it goes into your, it's just carbon. It's not gonna, it's not gonna work well in your in the mash tun. It's okay. just gonna be, uh, and it's gonna taste. I mean, roast malts do taste bitter, but yeah, there's it, an acrid bitterness. It burnt. Right. Yeah. yeah you get kind of an astringency and that kind of negative yeah. character to right, right. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so it ends up like sort of bits of carbon, which you don't want. Um, so yeah, that's roasting. How do you probably. ride that line there, and uh, you know, and kind of manage not to not to go over? Now, I've, I find it also interesting, um, in in a way that I hadn't considered before, that because with this small, you're not it, unlike base small where you're really concerned about the performance and the potential conversion, and uh, yeah, and enzymes like because these roast malts are used in pretty low uh, percentages, efficiency and performance is a concern, but it's not the concern. Um, uh, yeah. You know, how, do you, um, how do those things get balanced in your process? Yeah. So, so we tend to focus on, um, on, we, <laughs> we do tend to focus on two things um, with our, with our crystals, for instance, uh, one is color um, and the other is crystallization. So we do um, with that is, one of our specifications, um, we have something called a farinator or grain cutter. Um, and our roasters and our lab team will do a cut and they will count how many is crystallized, how many have kind of gone over. So they, they go sort of very black, they're burnt. And then we have ones that go white and they haven't converted at all. They haven't either, something's gone wrong early on or they just the barley's not alive um so we think that color and crystallization fundamentally comes through as color as flavor 
as flavor. So we feel as though, you know, those are the two things that we can um, most quickly act on in right. the roast plant. Um, flavor, you, you, if you get those two right, then your flavors should be right. That, that's the theory. <laughs> so, you know, and you get changes all the time in, right. with crop years and stuff like that. But, but that's, you know, those are two things that we feel we can have direct effect on. Uh, and if you get those right, then your flavors will be right. For sure. Um, so, yeah, we, ha- you know, we have uh, invested a lot of money in some really, really nice roast drums. Yeah. Um, Probat drums, uh, we think they're amazing. Um, we've, you know, we've invested a lot uh, recently and we've replaced two old Probat drums, which are from the sort of 60s, I guess, <laughs> um, which were which were great, still making amazing crystals, but were um, they needed a little bit of love, care, and attention, and and the quote for that was almost the same price as a new one. Um, so we decided, well, we'll go for a new one, and then it was, well, do we go for a new one this size, or do we get a bigger one? So we went for a bigger one because, you know, you don't get these opportunities right. very often, right. and we you know hey we're an independent business we can make that decision so we thought yes let's make it um so we so we so we did that but so these new vessels are amazing the information you can get for them is amazing um it's definitely assists that roaster in in sort of making those products um you know we're doing a lot of analysis of um something that is forever a moving target right. But for sure, it definitely helps us probably manage the fact that we have five of these, um, you know, on all the time. Right. So it definitely helps us be, you know, it sort of backs up our kind of experience in terms of when do I set that one away so that it doesn't come off at the same time <laughs> as another one, making it very tricky. Um, so we use that. But but definitely the arts of the roaster, yeah. I mean, you know, it's checking it. We can do grinds. We can do quick color matching by grinding it almost in a coffee grinder yeah. and, and looking at it next to comparative samples. Um, we've got the farinators to check it. Um, but, yeah, they're very small batch sizes. They're, you know, four tons yeah. instead of our biggest base malt. It's 400 tons. Oh, wow. So, you know, yeah, uh, but, yeah. and it's a lot shorter time, you know, it's, it's three hours, it's four hours. Yeah. So, so you have that ability to react quickly, right. um, uh, to make sure it's right. Um, but it also means and, that someone has to be watching it, uh, pretty closely because there's a, yes. a short time period yes. that makes a lot of difference in that kind of process. That's right. And, and, um, and the real art is, is finding that consistency and, you know, and, and, um, and, and that's very much where the experience comes in because every time you're taking out the green malt from a 30 ton process into something, a chunk at a time, it takes time. And that whole time, the germination is continuing. And then they might be thinking about making a different product from batch to batch. So, you know they're they're the chefs in our business for sure they right. they're uh i'm always amazed I'm not, you know they're um they're incredible right they're incredible um but yeah so you know that that's that's key and then and then how you blend those together afterwards that's that's another really important thing in terms of getting that consistency so it's you know not even blending two products which are within the same spec but might be you know 
the opposing sides of that spec. It's not doing that. It's blending stuff that's closer together so that when you cut it, you get a uniformity in colour because that's what you notice straight away. Um, and we, we feel like if we kind of look after the small details, then hopefully everything comes together you know, at the end. Um, that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. So since you're doing these in four-ton batches, um, ultimately you're saying that these multiple four-ton batches are being blended together into bigger batches in order to maintain a total consistency of spec. Um, and it's that I had not considered that before, but, um, you know, that, that's also like physically speaking, a lot of work, um, <laughs> blending four tons with four tons with four, you know, I mean, doing this with tanks, like, I mean, brewers understand this, that, you know, even blending things from multiple fermenters into one thing is a technical, like a process challenge, um, for, for you all, how does, how does that work? Um, in the malt house to kind of make that evaluative kind of judgment call and say, Hey, this is the right blend with this in order to, you know, to hit what we expect and what our customers expect out of this roast malt. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have a, we have a lab at the site. Um, so, so first of all, the, the, there is, um, we've got bits of kit that can measure color, um, uh, in the actual roast house. Um, and also we've got the sort of human eye. So um, you can quickly ascertain um, these batches. Um, they, they all go into separate bins, we call them. Mm -hmm. So little blending bins. So each batch goes into its own bin. And um, none of those are blended away until we get analysis from the lab. So once we get that analysis from the lab of each batch, that's when, you know, the the sort of uh, <laughs> the head chef, I guess, will look at it and go, right, okay, what can I blend with something else? Um, so which specs are tight enough that I can blend together to create a uniform spec? Um, and then they will blend that away to to a, a bigger bin, essentially. Um, and so that the those analysis bins, those blending bins are freed up again. Um, now, these blending bins, we have the capability to run uh, more than one away at a time, um, which is crucial because we can run away three, two, three, four away at the same time. We can adjust the feed on each bin so that you can uh, you can make sure that you're sort of you could even dial down in terms of the colors that go in each of those okay. if you need to blend away for, to different bins it's so not it's, just all of this it could intricate. be 20 yeah. percent of this and 10 percent of the other or, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, we um we we love technology yeah. we spend an awful lot of money on kit um <laughs> and um yeah it's it's those things that we don't mind spending that bit of money on because um it's it, you know uh you, you'll get years last year was a particularly tough year for the roast house in terms of um finding a way to to get homogenous uh sort of steeping and germination through you you really had to push barley last year to modify um and it's really hard to push something in the roast house because yeah. you've got to then suddenly really halt it and you know the barley's going. What the hell's going on? You know, um, do you want me to malt or not malt? And, and, and so it's kind of hard. Yeah. So we, you know, we we were really, really 
really challenged to try and get our crystallizations up last year. Um, thankfully, we're onto new crop, and it's it's great. It's like a dream again. It's beautiful. <laughs> so you know, I'm I'm hoping for good things from our roast house. Um, lots of good things. So I get the odd picture from Sean, the production manager. Um, saying, you know, check this out. It's 98% crystallization. So, you know, I, he's got to be careful. Otherwise, I'll expect that of everything, which is probably not realistically what you could get. But it's um, just, it's such yeah, a funny the, thing the, how it comes yeah. back down to that agriculture <laughs> and those uh, different crop years can have such an impact, uh, even on the kind of technical function of, of malt as it goes through your process. You mentioned yeah. um, when we were talking earlier that the character of malt that's grown in the UK, um, the beer in the UK has tended to taste the way it does because of the way that uh, the, of, of the character of the barley itself. Um, I'd love to unpack that a little bit more and, and understand what you mean by that, because uh, I think that that's a it's kind of a fascinating place to come from. We talk about terroir often with beer styles like Lambic or, you know, where, um, you know, or, you know, uh, hoppy beers in the Pacific Northwest where they taste like this, um, you know, place that they come from, whether it's where the hops are grown or what you know, this native yeast looks like. But thinking about beer and the flavors of beer as a product of the barley and the terroir, you know, coming from that kind of piece is also interesting. Um, you know, and so when you say that, uh, you know, what, uh, talk to me a little bit about, from a sensory perspective, how you get that idea that these flavors that you taste in that that barley that's grown in the UK kind of come through and have defined the beer styles that the the UK is known for. Ah, um, well, I think um, I mean traditionally, British barley um, seem to be low in protein. Um, you know it maybe looked a bit bolder so um so as you malted it and traditionally i guess british barleys were a lot a little or british malts were a lot darker and beer was a lot darker uh, mashing was a lot easier um these barleys would malt and modify so readily that they couldn't help but take on color and especially back in you know hundreds of years ago where you didn't have a lot of control over right. that kiln process so I suppose that's where traditionally they've come. And, and obviously, as more control came into kilning, we got paler malts. And, you know, that's that, that first sort of uh, wave of IPAs, for want of a better phrase. That's kind of, I guess, where those started. Um, it's, it's a topic of uh, conversation regularly in that, um, you know, you get modern varieties coming through and you know, how much emphasis is put on flavour. Um, you know, the sort of process by which barleys are chosen um, is, is uh, it's good, it's consistent. Um, very much, de- de- it very much con- um, I guess, influenced by the people who are doing the trials, who are investing in that. Um, and typically they've been the bigger brewers and... Typically, I suppose they're looking for some consistency, um, but they've got some great kit, right? And they're trying to brew a consistent beer that they've brewed for years and years and years. Now we're such an innovative industry that's, you know, the next new thing. And how do these flavors interact with other things like the hops, like the yeast, like the water, um, like the process? How, how, you know, 
you know, how do we get something extra out of these varieties? Um, and although the varieties change pretty regularly, um, they don't seem to, and this is where I might get shot down, they don't seem to have the, the variations like you would if you put it next to a, a Marisotta or a Golden Promise. And, you know, there's 50 years between these. So, of course not. And I know a lot of people say, well, of course, Marisotta was designed with brewers in mind, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I, I'm not sure if it was as, you know, um, it was like that predominantly. I think I think they've been made by companies looking at seed. They've been looking at something that, that is better agronomically because that does tend to suit everyone down the chain. Um, yeah, flavor, who knows? I mean... I sort of see a, an opportunity coming up where as we look to more sustainability uh, reaching aspects of everywhere, you know, um, agronomic, uh, agronomy has very much been about yield and disease control, which is yield again and, and lack and, and not putting inputs in. And um, so it's, 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 it has kind of become a bit more of an industrialized process. So, you know, if, if we take those away in terms of going, we need to be more sustainable. You know, we need to accept the fact that we shouldn't be chasing yields by the use of, you know, um, of necessarily uh, using chemicals or using those aspects. And, and, you know, if you're making barleys that are bigger yields year in, year out, you're going to need more and more assistance to get it grown get it harvested you know it's you know especially in the the areas they're grown now so you know i think that there's probably a look at how do we you know how do we take things like you know carbon out of farming out of malting out of brewing you know you probably need to start in you know involving things like sustainability but also things like flavor so um you know concentrating on something else rather than well it it's it's a big it grows big therefore <laughs> right right the economies of scale are great it's kind of you know? like bananas um, or tomatoes you know if we have the entire world's crop all of the same banana variety of the same kind of genetic root there's also a biodiversity you know kind of um, drawback to that where yeah. you know now we're seeing massive problems with uh, you know with that or you you've got uh, this kind of monocultural approach to like single varieties that look really good in stores with great color but also don't have a great flavor you know in those kinds of things and so um, maintaining that like biodiversity can also be its own goal and end for our agronomic and uh, um, agricultural kinds of systems that uh, maintaining some of these different things uh, you know is good and healthy in the long run I, you know I think for for the entire yeah. uh, it also kind of provides the kind of genetic building blocks in the future for some of those next things that may come along um, in the next time yeah and I and I don't I don't necessarily think that the way we do it is wrong. Right. No. I no. think that, that I think the opportunity comes from um, the fact that um, you know we you know there might be instead of getting new varieties. I mean we have trial plots and there are new varieties sure. every year all the time, and they cost a lot of money to make these varieties. And you know it's just like when they finally get one, it's like that 
kind of pays for all the other <laughs> right, research right, they're doing. Right. So, I mean, that is, I mean, crikey, I'm glad I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm glad I'm not a family business owner of somebody who's creating the next seed right. for heaven's sake. But, um, but yeah, I just think it maybe you know, we might see some more longevity in the varieties and, and, and that means that when one comes along that, uh, you know, has, has flavor attributes that people like, um, it won't necessarily get replaced by one that's yielding, you know, uh, one or 2% better than the previous. So, you know, that does happen to some extent now. And I, and I think it's, I think we are challenged a bit more on varieties because our end users are more interested in that and uh, uh, are more picky about those varieties. You know, we've definitely seen that. And I, and I just see there's perhaps opportunities there to kind of not, um, you know, to, to maybe, you know, ultimately the brewer is going to choose or the sure, distiller is going to choose sure. what the variety they want. But it might well be some longevity because... Um, there's not going to be that battle to keep that variety going because it's being outperformed right. uh, on, on something that we're not necessarily having to chase. So, and I yeah. know yield is very important because, <laughs> of course, right. you know, I'm, back, I'm not backtracking, but I don't want to get into trouble. But, you know, you've got to, you know, I, I, I realize that. And, but I, th- I think there are, there are opportunities out there to, to make sure that flavor is part of that conversation going forward it's a fascinating thing uh you know again coming back to the u.s and looking at it in our you know from the perspective of u.s brewers and maltsters um watching the kind of regionalization of varieties and watching you know the local um ag extensions for universities working with uh, smaller maltsters and craft maltsters and even larger scale maltsters to help identify functional and effective uh, varieties that are that perform in the way that you know bre- uh, brewers need them to perform, and also work in malt houses and kind of supply all of that. Um, but then are focused and effective in each of those different kinds of regions. It's a fascinating thing to watch on a larger scale, um, and to understand that brewers today, um, especially because so much of brewing is localized and regionalized and brewers are serving more and more local and regional audiences building a story for those beers that comes out of that kind you know that that is you know both this bigger national you know this bigger idea of the flavor they want to achieve and also can incorporate elements of that terroir you know they these become good stories and they also filter out into the agronomy for each of those kinds of uh, uh, local growers and areas too um and it's fascinating to watch all of this agriculture happening now at at this kind of level in a way that it hasn't necessarily happened in the past when you had a few a handful of ultra large brewers trying to maintain a pure consistency through everything that they did no matter where they did it in, in whatever kind of part and so i think that is an interesting piece that this opportunity for more character and flavor is right there um, and accessible to brewers, growers, and maltsters, uh, no matter where they are. Yeah. So yeah, one, one of the great joys of the job is, is introducing brewers to farmers and farmers to brewers because, um, you know, it, it's a people business and people love those, those connections. Um, and you know, brewers are very interested in where that, 
where that comes from. They're not they're not interested in us. They're interested in the farmer. They wanted they want that connection <laughs> with with the planet. Yeah, yeah. And and you know with the you know what it is the visceral thing where it came from. So um and and the the farmers you know they they absolutely love it. I mean you know you, you I know for a fact uh, of farmers literally going well. I'm going to drink your beer from now on, you know, because they, you know, so they can go sort of, Oh, Hey, you know, uh, I got this, this has got my barley in, you know, this has got my barley in and it, and it, you know, it works for distillers too. You know, you create fans and they get a real kick, you know, talking particularly about the States, you know, when we've had, you know, and, uh, our distributors, BSG, when they bring over people, uh, and they, they bring over brewers and we introduce them, and the brewer will hand them a, you know, a can of beer or a bottle of beer. And they're like, oh, my God, this is, you know, blows their mind. You know, that's something they, they've grown, you know, over a period of time. Um, has, okay, disappeared off in a, in a wagon. And, um, and, and then somebody's bringing something back that they can drink and enjoy that, you know, potentially has come from one of their fields. They're like, wow. You know, they don't know whether to drink it or put it on a shelf or, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's amazing. And there's no bigger joy because it's, it's, it's that the whole circle of the product. It's fantastic. That, uh, I think that's a fun segue into, um, the way we typically, uh, finish off the podcast. And that is this question of, uh, what success looks like for you, obviously as a fifth generation, uh, in this malt business, uh, you all have, this idea of family and continuity and clearly, you know, as we've talked about it, um, you care about the values, you know, down to the growers back out to brewers and even sideways to your own competition. Um, and want to care about the health of, of, of this entire kind of, uh, economy and community of, of people that are involved in all of these aspects. Um, you know, but for, for you and for Simpsons as a company, uh, what does, how do you define success? Um, yeah, wow. Um, so the, the family one is kind of easy. Um, I, I just want to, you know, I just want to be part of the story of, 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 you know, it being in a, in a, you know, still there, um, hopefully in a better position and a better uh, you know, and, and a better business. Um, when I finally retire or wooden box, whatever it is, than, than when I first joined, and I'm following my father. So, I, you know, if it's, if it's as good, I'll be very happy. Luckily I've got some really good people helping me with that. Um, success for us. Um, so we get, we get I, the thing I keep on thinking of, um, at the moment is the, we love it when we are at shows or we go into a brewery and we love people tasting our malts and I love, and it can be a member of the public or a brewer or whoever, whoever it is, I don't care is when they, when they put, you know, it's almost that what you mean? I can taste this and they put it in their mouth and the expression they get after that, where they're just like, it's like a wow. And, and that, that is glorious. 
uh, it's absolutely glorious because um, it just means that you know everything's working and 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 it, it makes my job a damn sight easier if I'm selfishly honest about that but it just means that everything we try to do is come off and you know in that malt is you know all our values all our investment all the care and attention of all my colleagues you know it's that that's a glorious moment I mean and and actually if I'm honest that's kind of that's what keeps you going year after year to be honest um yeah for sure uh yeah I quite like that <laughs> that's that's a nice way to put it uh nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S. Canada and Mexico partner with GD Chillers HS1228 takes you all the way to the heart of the West Coast. From a half-barrel to 30-barrel systems, Brewmation puts you in control. Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in branded drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. Abe Beverage Equipment offers complete brewing and packaging solutions. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Uh, Richard Simpson and Simpson Small, if people want to learn more about... Uh, Simpsons and what you all do and how you all do it and that history and everything else where uh, where can they find you all? Um, <clears throat> we are online on our website uh, www.simpsonsmalt.co.uk um, we're on Instagram at Simpsons Malt Twitter Facebook we're across it all um, YouTube as well we, we have some great snips on there and we love our barley so there's we have reports from trials through to, to everything on, on video, especially in these times. We're videoing more and more. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure to talk with uh, folks that are that passionate about what they do. And uh, we can taste the passion for what Simpsons does and in uh, the products that you make. And of course, the beers, the brewers brew with it. So, uh, uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast in this kind of remote edition, Richard. It was uh, great to talk to you. I wish we could have done it over a beer in person, but uh, I think this is the next best thing. <laughs> Definitely. And before I get my knuckles wrapped, of course, um, BSG, Brewers Supply Group, they represent <laughs> us in the States. Oh, For gosh, sure. I'd get such a slap. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, they're the reason why that we, we, you know, we do pretty well in the states um uh, amazing yeah. to our mind but yeah they're definitely the reason there and it yeah great speaking to you jamie and for sure uh, the beers are on me next time sounds good well cheers cheers this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.